to, to put this in the words in, in the right way with pauses inflections and even in, on the printed page the, the use of the right words the, the right rhythm in the sentence that's what's called the art of writing and that, 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 that is something that comes from work and long practice you don't start out good at it it takes a long time uh, in fact, I'm, I'm just getting to the point now where I'm beginning to feel satisfied with my writing yeah. and my storytelling, just at this point. Storytelling takes a long Listen, time. I have to go to the news. Could you stick around a little bit more? Oh, I'm here as long as you want me to. Okay, maybe we'll go to the phones, too. That's what Back. Gene Shepard is my guest. And, uh, uh, at the risk of sounding like uh, Joe Franklin, we're talking about the old times, talking about the new times. Uh, and Joe is something else, isn't he? Yeah. He certainly is. He is. Joe, to me, Joe Franklin is about it, as close to the epitome of the, of the Damon Runyon New Yorker. Definitely. He really is. Definitely. And, and he really yes, is. Yes, you, you have pegged it. But he is what he is, you know. I, 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 I've got a, an office right down the hall from Joe's. And um, Joe, Joe's office and the, and the conversations I inadvertently overhear that Joe's having on the phone remind me of stuff that Damon Runyon would have written. You know, Guys and Dolls. And uh, Joe, Joe really is a, a, a true New York phenomenon. He couldn't exist in any other city in the world. He, um, I, I once, uh, what I once said about him was that he, of all the people that I know in the broadcasting industry, he is probably the most real person. I, I, I mean, some people find him funny because of the way he acts or whatever. But he's real. I mean, sure that's is. Joe. Joe's always there. No way. difference between Joe on the air and Joe walking around. And Joe, Joe's one of the few really kind people I yeah, know. Very kind. Uh, Joe, Joe, and it's not the professional showbiz kindness. Uh, Joe, uh, Joe's always, he's literally the guy you always hear about that hands out $10 bills on the yep. street. That's very Joe. Very kind man. Fascinating bird. And he, uh, yeah, he's got a certain laconic, realistic view of life. Uh, yeah, he really does. You know, Joe, uh, you meet Joe in the hall just as well. I'm still alive, still walking around. <laughs> and he walks by. <laughs> every time, every time I see, every time I see Joe, and I've, you know, I've known Joe for about two, three years now. He's he's always saying something that every guy in broadcasting I know says. Every time I see him, I say, "How you doing, Joe?" He says, "Things are going great." He says, "Blah blah blah blah." Getting out of this business in a year. I'm getting out of this business in a year. And well, every year he's still there doing. That's it. Joe's litany. Huh? That's Joe's litany. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, he he's he's uh, he's an interesting guy. I I think uh, guys like Joe uh, set the tone much more for a city than the city itself recognizes. Uh, I've had people write to me, for example, uh, like from all over the world, really. You know, um, you know that 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 the station that I'm on has such fantastic coverage. I mean, just the, the coverage, the physical coverage of the station that I received the other day a tape in the mail from a listener who listens every night in Trieste, Italy, direct. Wow. Now that's scary. They don't even get the Tonight Show. They don't get Johnny Carson there. And, and, and uh, I've gotten, you know, I get letters from people who, who, who say that, that, that to, to them, uh, I'm, I'm New York to them. They hear yeah. this voice coming out. And, the New York references and the whole New York life that I describe in my shows, and and I think Joe, in a sense, is that way on television. The Joe Franklin show is, is New York. It's showbiz. Uh, to to Joe Raymond Navarro lives. 
Well, he will take what what is the smallest person, somebody you've never heard of before, and nobody's ever heard of before. And before he's through with them, at least while they're in that studio, they are a star. That's right. I remember one guy had a... And he makes no difference. Had the worst record in the world because he played it. It was just terrible. I never heard it before in my life. It had never come across my desk. And Joe said, I hear it's number one. You know, he's got a top-selling hit record. Number one on the charts. That's Joe. The chart was some little town down in (laughs) Alabama, which was his hometown, and the record was number one there because he was local, right? And Joe said, number one on the charts. (laughs) Joe Joe really, he believes in that old showbiz axiom to give everybody a hand. He really does. I I had a funny funny, uh, experience on the Joe Franklin show one night. I was on the show with Hans Conrad. Now, I had known Hans Conrad from uh, different uh, private meetings with Conrad. I knew him socially, see, so he's a very elegant man. So here's Hans Conrad, and here I am sitting there. And Joe says to Conrad, he says, uh, he says uh, Hans, he said, uh, he's been telling him how great he is and how Joe likes him. Joe likes Conrad, and he's telling him about his work. And Conrad's a very elegant man, you know, world traveler sort. And he says, to, he says Hans, uh, did, do you know the, the great uh, Blimpo? He says, of course you've heard of the great Blimpo. He said, uh, we've, we've got him here now. He said, the great Blimpo's coming on. He said, uh, you're really going to enjoy it. He said, uh, but the great Blimpo, here he is, one of the great stars now. Uh, you know what he does, Mr. Conrad? And Hans Conrad says, no, I have no idea what he does. He says, well, the great Blimpo, he says, you take this plate, this iron plate, you put it on the stomach, and you can hit it just as hard as you want with a sledgehammer. In fact, we have a, a member of the Philadelphia Eagles here who's going to hit Blimpo in the stomach with a with a sledgehammer. So Blimpo walks out, boom, they hit him in the stomach with a sledgehammer, and he says, there he is, a great start. Blimpo, thank you very much, Blimpo. Blimpo walks off, and uh, Hans Conrad says, very interesting. And uh, Joe says, yeah, he's a great star, Blimpo, great star, great talent. And that's Joe. <laughs> Everybody's the equivalent. It's a surrealistic show. It's a, Yeah, I, I did the show once, and... Um, um, what was amazing is he asked me some question, you know, like about you know what I wanted for my children, right? and uh, and I, I gave him an answer. I was giving me a very thoughtful kind of uh, uh, political type of answer, and uh, all of a sudden in the middle of it, I'm, I'm hardly through. He says, "By the way, do you know who the woman was that held up the torch in the beginning of the Columbia Pictures?" Now, I've never been able to figure out how he makes those segues, but somehow he manages them. Well, Joe, you know, I mean, be, just that's Joe's mind. Uh, his his mind is is a, is a protean mind, it, 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 and that's what I think adds to his charm. And and there's not a thing. Thinks it thinks in terms of what's coming next, oh, all as opposed time. to what is happening right now. Uh, but he's more, the funniest thing I ever saw in his show that one time was I, I think he had Anita O'Day. Remember oh, Anita O'Day? Sure. And, uh, yeah, he was talking to her, and she was talking about something about music or whatever. And in the middle of all of this, again, a non sequitur, Joe says, Edward Everett Horton passed away today. And Anita O'Day said, Oh my God, what happened? And Joe said, He died. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Well. <laughs> Of course, uh, there are certain sayings like that. You will say to some people, they say, uh, hey, uh, so-and-so yeah. died today. What happened? Well, you've already said what yeah, happened, you said right? Died. The other one I like is when people come up to you and they say, uh, hey, do you happen to know what time it is? And you say, right now? <laughs> you know, what? No, I want it for an hour from now, right? <laughs> what day is it? You mean now? Yeah. yeah. You mean today? <laughs> Joe, Joe's always doing those things. I, I remember Joe in the middle of a discussion one night on the show, and he says to me, uh, he says, uh, 
He says, do you like beef strong enough? And here we are talking about uh, the future of Western man or something. He says, do you like beef strong enough? And I said, uh, well, uh, I hadn't thought about it. Joe. He says, well, here. He says, here. He picks up a package. He says, take this home and dry it. <laughs> somebody gave him a sample. I don't know what made it. <laughs> Didn't somebody die once on his show? Die on I his show? I've heard about it. You mean theatrically die or literally die? You literally die on his oh, show. Oh, I don't know about that. I think that. Joe was on my show once and, and Could told be. the story that that happened. Could be. Uh, I, you know, speaking of guys uh, of, of terrible things happening, on a show, I uh, this is a uh, you, d you used to do a talk show, and you'll appreciate this. I still do one. Well, I'm talking about the kind <laughs> where you take the telephone. Oh, I still that. do. You do? Yeah. Well, well, I was I was out in the Midwest working at a television station, WLW, big TV station, the Crosby yeah. station out there, and uh, I used to do a, a, a segment on the radio. Uh, the radio they have a big radio station, of course. And I used to do uh, a one-hour show on radio too. So one night I'm up there in the, in the radio station. I, I, I had finished my TV show, and I'm up in the station there getting ready to do this radio show. When all of a sudden one of the engineers comes, comes running and he says, hey, he says, you better take a look in Studio 3. We're, we're, something's going on. He said, uh, and, and at that, it was, lit, it was at night, and there was a reduced staff there, just a few engineers, and myself, and this other guy that was doing the show. I said, what's the matter? He says, Jesus, I don't know. He says, uh, better uh, go down to Studio 3 and see what's happening. He says, we're getting nothing out of the studio. That's the studio that's on the air. So I go into Studio 3, and here's the guy that did the talk show with his head down on the desk and his phone in his hand. He has fallen asleep in the middle of his own show. <laughs> the show was so boring that he <laughs> fell asleep right in the middle of the show. I got one to top that. <laughs> well, I did. Well, here's what happened. He's laying there, see, and he's found asleep. The phone's in his hand, and the lights are all lighting up. He's snoozing away. <laughs> <laughs> so I just quietly tiptoed in and took the phone from his hand and continued the show. I said, this is Gene Shepard sitting in for Gary. <laughs> we went right on. and I after, never had that happen. The show went off the air. The guy's still asleep. I put the phone down, the theme comes on, and the light goes off, the studio's and I just left them sleep there. They tell me it's like three hours. Just leave them. <laughs> <laughs> you even know what? <laughs> tell you what happened to me. I was, I was working in Houston, Texas. I was a jock at, the t at that time. I was doing a morning show, and every morning, the newsman was supposed to be in at 6 o'clock. Well, he was a boozer and a gambler. And uh, what a combination! He never showed up before 7:30, so I'd either have to call up another newsman to come in and do the newscast, or I'd have to rip it off the wire and do it myself. So this keeps going on for months, and uh, every morning, you know, always late. Sometimes 6:30 instead of six. Sometimes it's 7:30. Sometimes he didn't even show up at all. Finally, one morning, I come in. I usually came in about 5.30 to get on the air by 6. And I walk in, and there in the newsroom is the newsman. This is the first time in a year that he has been on time to the show. He's in early. I said, this is amazing. I said, hey, man, what, you're in early like this. I said, it's, it's really something. He says, yeah, they gave me the word yesterday. I said, what do you mean they gave you the word? He says, if I'm late one more time, man, I've had it. I said, oh, that's terrible. He says, well, yeah, but I'm going to be here on time every day now. And he's in there typing away at news stories. So I go on the air. And I, w I went on the air at that time at 5.30. And then the 6 o'clock news would come along. And yeah. he did the 6 o'clock news. So um, I went on 5.30, did my shows, doing play music and everything. And finally I um, say, well, take time out. We'll be right back right after the news. And I push the button for the cartridge machine for the news theme, and the news theme goes, and then I push the the, the, the switch to 
turn on the newsroom so he can start talking. I turn it on, and I'm not even looking to see if he's there, you know, because the newsman yeah. always was. You never looked, you just hit the switch. And there's dead silence. And I look over, and I look up, and there's nobody in the newsroom. <laughs> oh, what's happening here? So I put on a record quickly, and I run in the newsroom, and he's not anywhere. Finally, I go into the lounge, and he's sitting there with a cup of coffee in his hand, sound asleep. <laughs> sound asleep. The dynamic news department. <laughs> we had a new newsman the next day. You know, it's funny when you get into reminiscences of crazy things that happen in the broadcast business. I used to do early morning stuff, yeah. believe it or not. And uh, you know how it is. I mean, some mornings uh, getting up and getting into the station at, at 5 o'clock in the morning is really a tough job. And I, I was living in a, in a flea bag hotel. I was going to school. This was a summer job. Had the early morning trick on this radio station. And I was on from 5.30 a.m. Went on from 5.30 to something like 8. It was my big show. And, you know, the whole business. So I had arranged with the desk clerk every morning. And by the way, I was a combination man at the time. I had a, a board, turntable, and everything. And the transmitter was way out in the country someplace. And at 5.30 in the morning, there was nobody on, in the studio at all but me. Nobody else there. And, of course, the transmitter engineer, 20 miles out, he's got the transmitter. So, every morning they would call me at 5, the desk clerk, in this flea bag that I was living in. And that they had, you know, they, it was really a terrible hotel. I'll never forget this hotel. It had a, a naked yellow light bulb hanging in the, the room. That yeah. was the light. And it was Battleship Gray. Everything was painted. <laughs> and it had been painted so often, Alex. The, the only thing that would make it worse is if halfway up they had painted it green. That, that would have added, yes. I mean, uh, I've seen that uh, decor. That's uh, that's early, uh, early, early YMCA. So, early American Quonset Hut. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So every morning, and, and it was really rough getting out. And I, and, I, and I was earning very little money, and it was really tough. I'd, and every morning I would go down. I had a whole litany, a whole routine. That he would call me at, uh, let me see, it was five, yeah, he would call me at quarter to five. The phone would ring. Had a, had a deal. So I had to be down there on the air at 5.30. And the station was only about three blocks down the street. This was in the city of Toledo. So the phone rings every morning, just like clockwork, quarter to five. I get up, I stay around, I get dressed, and I reel out into the streets. It's dark. And I would immediately go across the street to the White Castle. The White Castle, because this is all I could afford, I would have a cup of coffee and a donut. And then on payday, I would have a cup of coffee and a donut and an orange drink. That was to celebrate payday. I'm probably the only guy that ever had a charge account at the White Castle. So every morning I did the same thing. Then I would stagger out of the White Castle. And I had my coffee and I would go down the street. And I would go into the station. I had a key, glass doors. They were on the sixth floor. And I would go up to the station, open the doors, go in, turn the console on. And at 5.30, I was ready to go. The minute that 5.30 would hit, I would play the national anthem. And go in, into my routine, read the news, do a whole show. Well, this went on for about six months, like clockwork. One morning, the phone rings, just like it always did. I stagger out of the sack. I felt really peculiarly even more rotten than I usually did this morning. I don't know why. I just I felt like I'd been hit on the head with a hammer. The bell rings. Phone get. I get up. I get dressed. I stagger down and I go into the. I go into the White Castle. 
Well, it was different. For some reason, it was different. And I said, where's Ernie? And the guy behind the counter says, he don't come in yet. He'll be in a while. I says, okay. So he, I get the coffee and I go staggering out. I don't put any two and two. I go to the station. It's now quarter after five. I go in. I get the theme set up. I get my news. And at 5.30, I hit the button. I worked for about a half an hour. The show's going great. I'm really swinging. I'm saying funny things. No records are coming off and on. And I give the time. I give the news again at 6. And then I go on. And all of a sudden, my phone rings down next to me. And the phone is connected to the transmitter. I pick up the phone. I think maybe it's we're off the air. See? I pick it up. And I said, what do you want? And he says, what the hell's going on down there? I said, what do you mean, what's going on down there? He said, well, what, what do you got? You, you doing an audition or something this morning? What, what are you doing down there? I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, I just come in firing on a transmitter. He said, you're giving the news. I hear you talking about it. I said, what are you talking about? He says, well, it's only 10 after 5. <laughs> I've been doing an hour show into a dead microphone, <laughs> feeding the transmitter. And what had happened is the desk clerk called me at quarter to three. Oh and you know how when you're in radio you only look at the at the at the at the minute hand? Right. I'll tell you something weird. When I was working Reno, Nevada, this was like one of the first jobs I ever had, I had a show that went on at midnight and went off at six in the morning. And this was about March or April of the year. At that time of the year well, let me just go on and tell the story. I, I would get off in the morning, we'd go home, the sun would just be just come, be peeping just up. be peeping up over the hill. And I would go back to my apartment, and I would go to sleep. This one particular morning, I did exactly that. Got off, said goodbye to everybody. Got in the car, drove home. Got, took a shower, got into bed, fell asleep. Uh, the next thing I know, I wake up, and the sun is just going down. I slept a really a long time that day. Went, showered, shaved, got dressed, drove down to the radio station. But something didn't seem right. Just didn't seem right at all. I mean, it was sunset, all right, because the sun was just kind of, you know, yeah. peeping over the hill on its way down. And I look at my clock, and yeah, it's, you know, it's uh, like 7.15 at night, 7.30 at night. And I get to the station, and the morning man is working. I had somehow gone home fallen asleep for 15 minutes, woken up, looked out, thought the sun was going down, which instead was coming up. We have all the way to work. <laughs> well, you know, this business does some, some real bad things to your time sense. It really does. It you know? really warps it. Although, uh, this is something that people probably don't realize, is that all of us in the business, really, search for that time of day when whatever we do fits best. That's true. I mean, like, uh, I have found now, by having done this, sh this same show at 6 o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock in the morning, that it doesn't work. But since I've come into this time slot, we've usually been in the, uh, been number one on a couple of occasions, usually in the top three after midnight. Yeah. I find that if I do a show after midnight, I'll walk away with the ratings. If I do it at 8 o'clock in the morning, 
forget it. Oh, well, sure, you timing can. is all. And it isn't a matter of competition, it isn't a matter of anything else, no. but just you and how you fit to a particular it's, time of it's, day. You take John Gambling, for example, who is a real legend in this town. Yeah. I, I don't think John could work uh, what he does and his personality at any other time of the day, really. Yeah. And it's not to put John down at all. He's just right for that strange... Uh, that that ambience that he has in the morning. Well, we all we all search for our time of day. I mean, I would like to. Uh, would be wonderful if my time of day were nine to five, and I'd be like everybody else. But uh, I can't work that time. No, I, I can't just don't either. fit. I'm strictly night. Uh, that's my scene. And still early night. You're not, well. You could work deep night. Oh, you I bet think. I did. Yeah. You don't know my history. I started that whole all night talk stuff here in New York. I yeah. was on from midnight to five a.m. Yeah, you could do that deep night thing without oh, yeah. any real. But there are some people who go on at ten o'clock at night, who could not do it at two o'clock in the morning. They just yeah, that's fit. true. But Barry Gray, who I worked with for quite a few years, he couldn't do that. Couldn't do it at two o'clock in the morning. Eleven o'clock at night, twelve o'clock at night. Yeah, fine. But uh, not well, that that's, late. that's that's like John, uh, Long John. Uh, he's he's a late night guy. His stuff is much better at night. Uh, there's a certain introspective quality that people who work nights and who, who listen to things at nights that is part of their thing. Uh, you're 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 introspective. So am I. Yeah. Barry is not. Barry Gray. No, he's not introspective at all. Also, I think there's something about the... I mean, he's that kind of Well, character. I think there's something about the definition of the personality, too. Uh, I think that during the earlier times of the day, a person who moves along at a nice clip does a very professional job. That's what people expect that time of day. But when you get to this time of night, they really what they're crying out for is something that's human. You know, something that they can, they can hear and that's feel. That's true. Very much so. Uh, to a lot of people, my voice and your voice right now is a recognition to them that life is still going on in the city. <laughs> and there is hope. You know, and that there is somebody awake this yep. time of the morning. Yeah, and you don't want somebody who who's awake in the bright, cheerful, uh, I'll give you the time and the temperature sense. Oh, no. That's another no. thing entirely. We don't we don't want no Pollyannas around here. Let's see, what did I do with that earphone? You got an earphone here? Yeah, here. It's right, one down, right there. down there. Oh, this yeah. thing. You can grab it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, all right. Yeah. Is let's that let's take some calls. we got some people out there that want to yeah, uh, talk with you, and they've been waiting yeah, okay. for a while. Yeah. Uh, do you have a preference where you put an earphone on your ear? No, I like to put it on my, my ears. Usually. I usually have to have the sound if it's preferably going to come out of any side, out of the right ear. I've never yeah. been able to figure out why. You know, you're right-eared. <laughs> Good morning. Oh, Alex. Yes. Oh, I'm number one tonight. What? I'm number one tonight, I think. Yes. Shepard. Yeah. How are you? How are you? Uh, pretty good. Listen, I called to tell you, first of all, um, how much I've enjoyed you. You're a formative part of my teen years. That's what everybody says. Yeah. I was well, a formative part of mine, too. Yeah, I should hope so. <laughs> but I, I, an interesting question. I was yeah. rapping to Naomi, Alex, and um, we were talking about, you know, how moods change. Now I'm about Naomi's age, and I was, like, I was into Shepherd back around, oh, I would say three years ago. Mm -hmm. right? And that whole part of my life, really, it just struck me as very weird. That whole part of my life was a very happy, very kind of very into the same plane that Gene was into, you know, and that I could really communicate and really relate. And it seems to me as I grew older, I grew out of you, and my life really lacks something. Well, I'll tell you, that's, uh, that's a thing that all, all writers and entertainers go through, uh, particularly guys who are who write, uh, in a sense, uh, about life itself, that you go through these things. And I, I, as a performer, I recognize that what I do 
if, the interesting thing is a lot of people will come back then and see different things in my work that they didn't see when they were kids. In short, my work is on several levels, and uh, the kid only sees the Jews harp and the, and the kazoo and and, uh, and Schwartz and Flick. Uh, stick around a couple of years and you'll see something else in it, and they come back. And that's, that's the way all humorists are. It's like when you first read Mark Twain, you think it's a great story about a kid on a raft. Yeah. And then later you see it's a lot more to it than that. And so I expect uh, listeners to drop out. See, they, they always think, well, it's because uh, I went through the shepherd phase. Uh, not so. You really go through a certain phase where you only see one thing in a thing, and then you come back to it, if yeah. you do. You, you really you answered my second question very well, which was, you know, are you cognizant of the changing ages in your audience? Oh, always, yeah. In fact, I find there are two really important groups of my audience that the uh, that the that there's the kid group who, by the way, the only groups the the, the there's only two groups of people in in life in general who who can have a sense of humor about life. That's the very young because they don't really have any responsibility, and the very old who have given up hope and now they can laugh at it. The mm -hmm. in-between guy thinks he's got the world by the you-know-what and that it's a very serious world for him. And uh, it takes a very unusual person to say, I'm not talking about comedy, I'm talking about humor. Mm -hmm. The ability to laugh at your own life is not one that you find in your average junior account executive at Y&R. <laughs> That's right, man. I'm telling you. And he thinks he thinks he's onto it too, you know. Yeah. And a couple of years later, you know, when he sees that he's really not onto it and it's it's not going to happen, then he begins to sit back and he says, "Geez, you know, uh, I see what he was talking about now." But at the time, when uh, most kids. Uh, the irony of life. See, I deal largely in irony in my work. And irony takes a certain experience. You know what I mean by life experience. You have to experience several major defeats to develop a sense of irony. Uh, and a kid of 15, he hasn't any major defeats. So he sees the, you might say, the, the surface of my work, which is a certain ambience and a, and a free-swinging spirit. He digs that. He digs the Schwartz and the Flick and the Brunner. Later on, when he's 30, he suddenly realizes Schwartz and Flick and Brunner didn't get the girl. He sees the, he sees the tragedy of, of, uh, of, of the character I, Shepard, going out on a blind date and, you know, being, uh, being a big man, he's going to take this chick out and give her a real break. And halfway through the date, he realizes he's the blind date. They're the one. I remember the story. Okay, but you have to have had a certain amount of experience to appreciate the irony in that. It's true. I didn't have my. I didn't have a Buick yet. You, know? <laughs> you see I'm what I'm saying now? Cars now, but not then. Yeah. So humor uh, is a funny thing. Uh, other people come to it later. Uh, uh, some people aren't uh, can't see humor uh, when they're a kid. Those are the ones that go around with buttons that say love on them. Uh, they're very serious. They they, uh, they feel that uh, that the that the torch of civilization has been handed into their uh, has been put into their faltering hands, and uh, that's another kind of kid. He usually digs rock, you know, incessantly, rarely smiles, <laughs> and uh, very serious about his reds and quaaludes. Yeah. Yes, and he's very serious about himself. He yeah. really feels that he's one of the chosen, and 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 anyone who feels he's one of the chosen never laughs. That's, that's what I. That's what I. Well, I, I often said. Yeah. Well, I often said that's the one thing uh, that I 
couldn't stand about American communists is they had no sense of humor. Well, they did. I'm, I'm sure you bumped. I'm sure you bumped into a few oh of the God, old no. old line American communists, and oh. uh, you know, uh, they never crack a smile. It's always very well, serious. Any, the world's the world's in bad shape. Yeah. Right. Uh, any you know. any dedicated, uh, uh, you might say, uh, cause carrier, whatever he might be, he may be a religious zealot. He may be. Uh, you can't imagine anybody during the the Inquisition, any of the judges ever laughing at home. <laughs> no way, because righteousness is 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 uh, militates. Well, you, know, you know, you know what's funny, Gene, is the interesting thing about the kind of phenomenal political movements that took place uh, in the late '60s were that the people who led those people were not of the old style, but rather ones who tried to do it with humor. I mean, if you check the operating philosophy of Abby oh. Hoffman, he did it with a great well, deal see, of humor and satire. No, no, I'm not saying they were. Philosophy. Uh, and, and that's why most of those people were hard-pressed if you ask them, well, just exactly what, you would, what would you like the world to be like? They took refuge in uh, what you might say cliches, love. Well, know. you know, I'll tell you, this is this. Um, Abby has been a, a friend of mine for about three years now, and um, I don't claim to understand him any more than a lot of other people. But the one thing that I've always always appreciated is uh, a great influence on me was Lenny Bruce. I'm sure he was well, on see, a lot of people. A showbiz character. Yeah, but when, uh, Lenny, um, what Lenny did on a stage. Abby did in the streets. I mean, it wasn't a matter of saying, I have the answer. It was a matter of, I see the faults. And now I'm going to tell you the faults in ways that are kind of going to make you smile, but they're also going to make well, you reflect exactly as well. This is exactly what I do, too. Yeah, right. See, this is why uh, Paul Krasner, in fact, uh, used to compare my work. In fact, he used to say that I was the, the non-Jewish or the wasp Lenny Bruce. That, that we, we, we worked yeah, in, a, yeah. in, in many ways very similarly. If you've ever sure. seen me actually work on stage, right. Alec, as opposed to radio, which is a small part of my work. Well, I heard your record, yeah. Well, I mean, it's actually... Very, it's a very good, it's a very astute comment on this part. Alex, I have a question. Yes. yes. Well, I'm still here, by the way. Oh, good. We, we went from life to politics and back. Uh, are you going to do any more performing, Shepard? Like, you know, I remember the Gaslight, which was just before my time, really. Uh, well, I, most of my performing, I, in fact, I perform all the time now, uh, but it is not done in clubs. See, there's a new thing that's come about in the last three or four years. Called TV. No, not at all TV. It's called, it's called the college circuit. Oh, yeah. And, and the, the clubs really are, have died, uh, per se, for, for particularly for comics. And and uh, rock groups, yes, but but comics, no. And uh, there's only two or three places they can work: Miami, Las Vegas, and that's about it. But a few good performers, and I'm I'm lucky to be one of them, uh, have a great acceptance on the college stage as a performer. So I perform in colleges mostly. I I, I just did uh, Wilkes-Barre College uh, this week. Uh, two weeks before that, I played Notre Dame. Uh, this year I played Northeastern. I played uh, uh, I played colleges all throughout this. In fact, throughout the country, I, I played uh, the University of Oklahoma back in uh, in November, and I have about thirty or forty of them lined up. Now the the limelight was a nightclub, and and I was there for two years, and I, you know, I I had it. I didn't want to play there anymore. You clubs are a, a bad routine for a performer. After you can get into one thing. 
Well, it's 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 a tough kind of performing in that you're competing with scotch. You're they're there to drink. You're there yeah. to perform. That's the right. Two don't and mix. You're, you're competing with the guys uh, that are having fights with their wives, and and when you when you play when you play the college auditorium, that's the don't don't confuse this with lectures. It's a very theatrical setting. Uh, I play with lights. You know, I did a show. I just did a one-man show that was a big success over here at Carnegie Hall. I didn't catch it, but I, I remember the the ad for it. It was it was really a, a really a big show, and we we had a full house. And to me, this is much more important performing today than say performing before 150 guys sitting around drinking scotch. Well, and, most uh, comics hate clubs. Now. Oh, sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough it. life. I, 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 you know, the, the manager of the club is always standing over near the cash register and he'll time you. He says, you were supposed to give me 20 minutes, you gave me 18, you give me another two minutes on the next one. <laughs> and, you know, it's a, it's a menial job and uh, very depressing. Well, then again, you, you, you got to remember, you're still in you're still into radio, and that's where you can reach a lot of people and maybe, again, like you made me just realize, laugh at themselves. Well, I use radio just as one medium. I, I, I To me, radio... I'm not primarily a radio man, uh, although most people, I suppose, in New York think of me as that way because that's where they know me. But but uh, no no radio man does a one-man show at Carnegie Hall, I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I came to New York as a performer and an actor out of the out of the Chicago school, of the, the second city and all. And uh, I use radio, television, writing, whatever medium... You know, is 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 the thing I'm I'm doing at that moment. Well, I I think you misunderstood me. I I don't you know put radio down as a medium. I think you're you're a great asset to radio as it is today. Simply being an actor. I mean, I never viewed you as as a radio person looking at a, as a, at a radio person as a DJ. In other words, I viewed you as an actor and as Shepard, you know, doing his thing on the radio, which no one else does. It's almost that's unique. true. And it's, and really it's a shame too. Uh, I think radio. Uh, Tends to downgrade itself. It tends to, uh, it tends to feel that the, the really important people are actors that come in to be interviewed. Uh, as a medium, they don't think of themselves as that important. And unfortunately, I think they, they, they have a, a distorted view of themselves. I think that, that radio could be a very creative medium. It's too bad. Where else can you drop out? 500-ton Maraschino cherry into Lake Erie. <laughs> right, exactly. Right? Listen, we got to move on to some yeah, other Alex, calls. Um, I know you got a lot of people on the line. I just wanted to say, first of all, the show's been great. I really enjoy it. And would you give me back to Naomi? Shepard, it's been a pleasure. And uh, Thick lives. <laughs> okay. yeah, it sure does. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Naomi, 2-0. Uh, <laughs> if you're on drugs and you'd like to learn how to live without them, call Phoenix. You sound a little like William Powell after four drinks. <laughs> I don't remember what William Powell sounded like. Oh, elegant. He's fine. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah. I'm on. Can you wait a second so I can light my cigarette? Yeah, we've got all the time in the world. Of course. Thank no, you. No problem here. Second goes by pretty quick. Yeah. How are you, Gene? I'm fine. Thank you, Vu. Uh, I don't know. I was just listening, and all of a sudden I heard you on here as I'm working here. And uh, just thinking about what you took uh, said before, especially from your witticisms, that when people say certain things and then you say something and they act dumb when you, I just thought I'd throw this in, when anyone says, oh, I flew down to Miami, or then you ask them, uh, did you take a plane, and then they always say yes. Say. <laughs> Very true. Right. What time is it? The guy mm -hmm. says, now, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway. Yeah. Uh, 
Oh, Christ, now that I'm on the air, <laughs> what's this talk about? Ain't that the truth? That's happened to many a performer. Uh, You're on the air. a lot of your stuff in Playboy. Yeah. Uh, do you have it anywhere else? Because I never usually see it anywhere else. Well, I write for Playboy. I also write regularly for Car and Driver. For who? Car and Driver. Which Car is and Driver? Car and Driver, which is... What do you mean, with the rovers and stuff? Well, not really. <laughs> and uh, I, I generally uh, appear in hard covers. Yeah, I know. I got both of your books. And, and that's that's the extent of what I do. I don't I don't I don't think of myself as basically a magazine writer who you know just writes for a lot of magazines. Are I used to write a lot for uh, for the Realist, but uh, the Realist is too sporadic these days. It comes out uh, when Paul has the. Well, one thing I always liked about when I used to listen to you around three years ago, like the other guy said, is that when you talked, you always talked as though you were reading from a book and acting it out, but the point was is that you weren't reading it from a book. That's right. You were making it up at the time. Did right? you make it up right. as you went along? Yes, that's right. And it, it just it just really flipped me out. And I really became like an, sort of an idol of yours, so to speak. I still have on my wall here a collector's item from... Uh, a poster print or whatever of Gene Shepard. So that is a collector's item. You know, and on the side I have your <laughs> autograph, Excelsior, you know, Gene Shepard. What are you doing? Well, you say you were working. What are you doing now? Oh, what am I doing now? Yeah. Oh, I got a business here and uh, stereo business, and I'm writing out new price sheets and stuff. At four in the morning. At four in the morning? Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm a night person. I listen to Alex Bennett. I can tell. <laughs> yeah, and I used to be a day person when he was on in the morning. And an evening person when he was on in the evening. Now I'm a night person. You're being controlled by the media. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for calling. Okay, okay thank you, man. Bye -bye. Hang in. Bye-bye. Um, let me see this WPLJ in New York. And, um, you know, it's kind of interesting, Gene, because um, I am not from New York. Uh, I've only been in the city now about three and three quarters years now. And so a lot of people talk about you, you know, like, oh, I used to listen to Gene Shepard when I was growing up. Well, they all say that. May I say this? And I can't relate to that. I can only relate There's to the Gene Shepard that I know from, like, the last well, uh, well, three years or so. Well, that's the thing I was going to say. This is weird. You know? The, the, you know, Alex, after all, I've only been here in New York on the air since... 58. Mm -hmm. Isn't that long, really? Uh, well, no, it isn't. You know that, that, that the year after I came to New York on, on WOR, uh, Johnny Carson took over The Tonight Show. You're right. Yeah, that's right. See, the, the thing I'm, I'm trying to say here is that time is a very curious thing. When, when you talk about it in terms of radio, it always seems very long. In terms of television, uh, nobody thinks of it in those terms. And, and, and what I do on the air... Uh, is a curious thing. It's very, very subjective. Uh, people listen to me, and no matter who I talk to, no matter what his age is, he can be 75 years old. Every listener believes that he listened to me when he was a kid. We'll be back in just a moment. <laughs> Which he did, of course, but he this. believes it. Chef, well, this is hard to believe, but I have been listening to you religiously since 1958. And what amazes me is that your prophecies always come true. Yeah, that's uh, right. <laughs> I think the one about slob art, I think that's probably your best single show you've ever done. Well, uh, thank about, you. Uh, I think it was both kind of business now, Stearns and 42nd Street. The people who bought the dresser set with that blood-red uh, color with little engravings of Thomas Jefferson in it. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I predicted the emergency. Now that's, uh, that's uh, Tiffany's is, uh, accusing Citibank, and it's uh, page one of the Times. Yeah, well, did, you remember years ago I was predicting the emergence of slob art as a major form of our time. 
Well, I laughed at but it's true. And I mean, it really it's came about. It's it? humor. It's true. <laughs> well, a good humorist, you know, any humorist uh, is really a futurist. He's always predicting the future course of events. Uh, based on current uh, happenings, and most people don't see, you know, what uh, is going to come out of what they've done. But a humorist does. Well, and the emergence of, of commercials. I mean, I just heard, I think it was last night, the uh, Slovenia commercial. Uh -huh. And uh, I must say, for a voiceover, I mean, I'm not very attentive to voices, I'm not very attentive to television, it, it came out very well. Well, thank you. And the uh, beer commercials, of course, which I think, oh, but you're, you're short, the television show about beer was priceless. <laughs> you know, I, just the other day, on a Saturday, I was at a restaurant. You're right, you cannot mispronounce beer. I heard this guy say, well, we'll have a couple of beers, you know. Beer. 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 <laughs> beer is the lifeblood of the Jerseyite. And uh, I think <laughs> my my favorite show was, I think it was about slop, about the uh, army stories. The one about putting on your gas mask and having to breathe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so we took all the chemical cartridges out of the gas mask. <laughs> You can breathe real good, but if you ever got gas, you forget it. <laughs> well, I'm glad you listened, man. I really do. I'm not pronouncing your name like, like Smith. S-M-I-T-H will be Smith. Yeah. Anything but Smith. <laughs> okay, man. Thank you. Oh, one more thing. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, uh, the, yeah. uh, the show you did on the art movies, you know, the third Ave, the theater in, say, 3rd Avenue and 60th Street, you know, you uh, get online, you stand in line for like five hours, and you pay your $3, get in another line, a lobby that serves lukewarm Colombian coffee. Yeah, there's and a the, feeling uh, of like real righteousness, too. In fact, uh, the average moviegoer, who, by the way, they're <laughs> cinema-goers. Uh, cinema-goers. Uh, oh, wait, wait, very important thing, Shep, is that the lobby is feels... decorated by the nephew who does paintings. Yeah, yeah. the nephew that does paintings, yeah, the, and, and there's a very important thing, though, about those cinema buffs, they prefer to call themselves, that the longer they wait in line, the more righteous they feel. Uh, if they ever walk into one of these films and there was no line at all, they, you know, feel like uh, either it's a very bad film, they shouldn't be there, or they're not paying the proper penance. So it's all, it's all connected with guilt. I, I saw a movie which I, which I shall not name, which I think was probably the worst movie ever. So I had to stand like about six hours. From that time on, I started going. Either way, when I can, I'll go in the early morning or very late. Well, you know, you know that some uh, some movie producers have discovered that. And the morning when their film is opening, it's say at a bad movie house over here, or, you know, one of the cinema types, Cinema yeah. 2, Cinema 9, uh, what they do is hire about 45 out-of-work people to stand in front of the box office. They act people. like lures, you know, like 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 duck decoys. You know how duck decoys work? That's it. You know Alan Abel. Well, those are the same people. They're over at the Elgin. You and I, they're uptown, let's say, the Thalia or the Olympia or the New Yorker. Same right. people. No, I was, I was just going to tell them about Alan Abel. When Alan Abel opened, is there sex after death? He went out to Columbia University and hired about a hundred kids to stand on line at a buck an hour. Oh, there you are. Just to make it look like there were people in front right, of the theater. Know, those lines will attract other people. See, it's the duck decoy syndrome. Yeah. If you put a bunch of rubber ducks in the water out here someplace, within five minutes, a lot of real ducks come down and see what the hell's going on with the ducks. Exactly. <laughs> but that's, a, but that's another thing that's great me about New York movie theaters, is that they, <laughs> is that they, uh, they do this uh, purposely because... You go to go to them and you say, uh, okay, I'm going to buy a ticket, and they sell you a ticket. They say, okay, now you wait in line. You say, well, I just like to go right into the theater. Can't do that. Why? 
Just get in line. Well, you don't. And you get in line and you wait out there, and then they let the movie out, and three people walk out. <laughs> right? But they've been keeping you out there, but so that, you look good to attract a crowd. Alex, you're a very innocent person, and, and, <laughs> and our caller knows that I'm not an innocent person, right? Right. Well, that's called a tip. Uh, have you ever heard an old pitch manager's person oh, called the tip? John. No. That's not log jazz. That's a classic. Well, uh, no, he, but he uses the word. Oh yeah. Well, the, the, no, the word tip means. means see if you if you set your little you know if you set your case up on the boardwalk let's say at Asbury Park right and uh, you start selling your plastic potato peelers and what? nobody's showing up you know you keep hollering uh, come on right now let's go I want to show you how the potato peeler works magnificent potato peeler will sharpen pencils you can you can renew your your ties with this use it as a screwdriver and he's working away there and nobody shows well as soon as he gets he has to have a group of people a group of people always attract other people so the group that he gets to stand around is called a tip now the movie houses all look for tips <laughs> well, they'll show only one show, like it's midnight, you know. This, this will make a, I think that happened to El Topo. That's what made it successful, just by showing it once once a day for over a period of weeks. It gradually drew a crowd. That's true. And, and of course, uh, at midnight, four people standing around in one block is a crowd. But I, I often feel that it's very misleading to watch any movie at 4 o'clock in the morning, because I have... Uh, I can remember sitting up watching The Late Show, watching a movie that I would not watch at any other time of the day, or even take time to watch. You know, The Lady Gambles with Barbara Stanwyck, right? And you sit there, man, and you're 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 on the edge of your seat with this picture at four o'clock in the morning. But if they showed it on the early show, forget it. Well, you just aren't going to sit for it. There's a new organization that's been formed in town. That's uh, that's what it is. Is really is Late Show Anonymous. And uh, this this is a terrible drug. Uh, there are people who, like uh, I used to be in this problem, uh, that at 3 o'clock in the morning, there I am for some totally un unexplainable reason watching a Chester Morris movie. Yeah. That was shot in 1932. And loving it. Well, not really. No, no. Oh, I find myself real, loving it. No, no. The, the, the I really, went through Audie Murphy, well, then, David then, Wayne, and Wait Till the Sun well, Shines, Nelly. See, if you yeah. loved it, see, you weren't sick. Uh, but I, I can see that I was a sick man. But, uh... <laughs> That it's like the alcoholic. You don't think he's loving that drink. It's he doesn't even taste it. He's just drinking them down. He can't stop. So so the non-drinker loves the drink. The alcoholic needs the drink. That's different. And so three or four in the morning, I'm sitting hollow-eyed. You know, I watch Alan uh, Alan Hale flying a, a biplane. <laughs> Senior, senior. And yes, he's flying to meet Priscilla Lane. And I can't figure out what the hell I'm watching this for. And then on comes the Preparation H man, uh, who comes on late at night on these TV movies in New York. The only breath of sanity in those movies. <laughs> Alex. Yes. There, there was a great one on the last night with Spencer Tracy. <laughs> Father's Little Dividend. <laughs> what? Father's Little Dividend. Spencer Tracy was, was Elizabeth Taylor's father, and he buys her an air conditioner. I thought it was the commercial. I was showing you how to operate the, how to operate the uh, my, my favorite. air conditioner. I thought, it was, I thought it was a commercial. My favorite late show movie, and I must have seen it at least 30 times now, is, uh, is David Wayne in Wait Till the Sun Shines, Nellie. Which, you are dedicated. Huh? You are dedicated. Listen, you are picture. dedicated if you watch that. To give you an idea of what it's like. You got a monkey it, on your to back. give you an idea of what it was like, it was produced by Georgie Jessel. <laughs> <laughs> and you can take it from there. It, it, it's a 200 handkerchief picture. It's got every twist and a plot that you can possibly have. It's the worst movie by far ever made. Musical direction by it. Sammy Kay. 
I think so. <laughs> hey, listen, thank you for calling. Oh, hey, hey. One more thing. Yeah. About the, the king who's the barber who hisses in your ear, you know, would he see you like a little more off the sideburns? <laughs> Chef? Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> yeah, that is. No, no more barbershop. That was that story I told. Yeah, I told about how my how my barbershop used to be known as 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 uh, Tony's. Yeah. And and then he became Anthony. The change. And they had these purple uh, purple smocks, <laughs> and he began to lisp heavily. <laughs> everything changed in my bar. <laughs> Thank you for calling. So long, man. <laughs> Gentleman Quarterly replaced the the Police Gazette. <laughs> Uh, well, Seven fifty for a haircut, yeah. Uh, we should remind people that your book is called The Ferrari in the Bedroom. Right, and it's a thriller. It will keep you on the edge of your seat. And right, you can read it any time of the day. And That's right. Good. It's magnificent. It's published reading. by Dodd Mead. That's right. That, I always like to mention that. So by the way, it has a special obvious. binding that self-destructs. I don't know. I've got the book in the back of my car. And right now. in three weeks, it's going to blow up right in your hands. I call that literal uh, education. <laughs> it's good for people. I mean, with all these bombs going in and out of mail post offices and stuff. So, uh, what are you going to be doing from here? What am I going to be doing from here? Well, I'm, you know, I'll keep slogging along. I'm, I've got a novel that I've been working on now for about three years about the army. It's called The Secret Mission of the Blue Ass Buzzard, and that'll be out this coming spring. <laughs> it's pretty funny, and uh, I, uh, the, I think I did mention earlier, didn't I, that uh, my first book uh, in God we trust has been reissued now it's it's back on the stay very unusual in the publishing world for them to bring something back out and it's out now again and that is going to be made into a TV series oh really the people who did uh, Mary Tyler Moore have taken an option on it to do it as a series that's marvelous well I don't know I'll have to see it, <laughs> yeah, <this is> what <laughs> it looks like that's right hey thanks for coming by thank you Alex and uh, come by more your gentleman Thank you. And a pro. Thank you. Anyone who did an early morning show in Texas is dedicated. No, just lucky he lived through the experience. Well, that's that's like playing in the Because they don't like you in Texas, man. They come after you with guns. Well, they are very, very direct. Yes, you get a very honest reaction from your How'd you like the climate down there? The humidity? No, just the general climate. Yeah, well, the humidity in Houston is is uh, ten months out of the year. You have a crease in your pants. You walk outside, and the crease disappears. Uh, <laughs> the, it's the only fully air conditioned city in the United States. I mean, you go. Does it get warm in the winter there? Um, or cold? In the winter, no, it very seldom ever goes down below around sixty, fifty. It's probably the coldest I think I ever saw. It was forty once. It actually hit forty, and everybody was. was Never really been warm. to Houston. I know nothing about the city at no. all. A, uh, Houston is the oddest town in Texas, and the reason it's the oddest town in Texas is that it's not Texas, because it's the newest town in Texas, and you get a lot of the people from NASA and a lot of the scientists and so on. Is, so it, like, is it like a big city? Like, no, you know, you get the sense of a big city or just a big town? It's it's a big town in size, okay, and so everything's spread out. But it has gigantic buildings, but they're not all crowded in together. You may have one in this part of town, another big building in this part of town. So it's very airy, very spacey. Well, did you get around much to other parts of Texas? Went to Dallas. and uh, I've never been there either. Where's San Antonio. Austin. I've been to San Antonio, and I've been to uh, Fort Worth. Uh, yeah, that's a, that, I, that's a real fascinating town. And the other, only other town I've ever been in in Texas is El Paso. Now, that's something else. Yeah. Right up in the panhandle. Yeah, that's really Did something. you grow up in El Paso? 
That's why you turned out the way you did, huh? To me, that that town has really got flavor all its own. I I mean, El Paso is an exciting town. I couldn't find a hotel room in El Paso. I was driving through El Paso in the middle of the night, and I I finally decided I was tired enough and I had to stop. And I stopped and I tried to find a hotel. I couldn't find a hotel in that town at 3 o'clock in the morning. Well, you know, you didn't see the city in the daytime then. No. Well, El Paso is really a a great-looking city. To me, El Paso looks like the way I always imagined Texas should look. It really looks like Texas. It really does. I mean, there are deserts and everything around it. And you walk across the bridge, of course, to Mexico. You're right in the, in Mexico right, there. Right. And uh, I remember one night walking across that bridge and, and walking into Mexico. and walking. There's a place right across the bridge in Mexico, a fantastic motel called Camino Real. Who says he doesn't have a great memory? Isn't that a wild place? I'm telling you, it's it's uh, it's uh, to me this is part of the country that. Uh, Why some funny things happen in that hotel? It isn't really a hotel. It's it's a spectacular uh, desert motel. Is what it really is. Mm. And and uh, it it looks well. It, it, it you you ever see these movies of uh, of. Uh, of Rio, Rio, uh, these uh, fantastic. Uh, right. they, they used to make old movies of, of uh, Latin American, uh, say Cuban nightclubs, and in the nightclub, uh, Carmen Miranda was always coming out with a thing on top of her head, you know. And Xavier Cugat was playing, and there were millions of people, and they and the, the chorus dancing line, on yeah, vinyl stages. Exactly, yeah. that's what Camino Real. <laughs> there's a nightclub there where they won't let you in unless you have a tuxedo, and it's in a desert. And all these elegant, uh, right? Am I exaggerating? Not kidding. I'll all. believe you. I'll believe anything you say, Gene. All right, Alex. Thanks for being here. Peace. And uh, think clean thoughts, Alex. Before we go to the news, a reminder the New York City Department of Consumer Affairs. Tom Gambling is calling you in about an hour. Oh, really? Yeah. Yes. Well, tell him not to, will you? It'll be down there to that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, this is Earl Dowd, ladies and gentlemen, of Earl Dowd's uh, Banana Paradise. How are you? Huh? How are you? I'm fine, Earl. Hey, that's good. And Earl and I, during the break, were on the phone. I thought it would be kind of interesting for the audience to to hear about this. Every year, uh, the, the the various people, I guess, that we do business with, record companies primarily, send out little gifts. And because of the payola laws, they can only they can't be worth more than twenty five dollars. Uh, and they try to go well under that. Yeah, actually. they can be worth a lot less. Yes, and, and uh, in fact, the, the cheapest one, I think, that we were going to compare gifts is what this is all about. Uh, these are called promotional items, actually. If we opened a store and put these things on sale at a dime apiece, we we'd couldn't get a business. Exactly. Huh? The, probably the cheapest one that I've gotten with the most expensive flourish. In other words, having a messenger send it to me, come up to my apartment, knock on my door at 9.30 this morning. Luckily, I wasn't asleep have me sign for it and hands me this envelope and Earl got one too one small miniature bottle of champagne I mean really tiny really tiny we won't even say who gave us that folks because we don't want to make them embarrassed I don't want to say how small they were but the messenger had about 400 of them on <laughs> right right <laughs> Let's see, what else did well, you... Well, that particular record company is always sending things by messenger. Right. I don't know whether that's because they think that that impresses us, or whether they just forget and at the last minute they decide to do these things. Right. I mean, haven't you had messengers come from there before? And always at 8.30 in the morning. Right. Yeah. Right. Now, there was a bent nail sent this year uh, in the form of a woman's bracelet. 
which doesn't fit on, on anybody's wrist except maybe Margaret O'Brien's about <laughs> ten years ago. Did That's, you get that? No, I didn't get the bent nail. I guess I'm out of, out of uh, um, what can we call it, uh, grace. I mean, it's shiny and everything. I'm not putting it down. Yeah, but... But uh, it's a bent nail. It, it, I got a popcorn popper. Mm. That's good. Where you put butter in the top of it, and it butters the popcorn. But the only problem is the butter doesn't melt. It's a big problem that I'm having with that one. I got some popcorn. And I'm getting fat on top of it. No, I didn't get the popcorn popper, but I did get some popcorn. Did you really? So we should get together. <laughs> right. I'm sure we can make something out of that. Let's see, what else did you get, Earl? I got a pair of uh, bookends in the shape of two small frying pans. Was that from a record company? Uh, no, that wasn't. It was from a food company. From a food a company? A Chinese food company. Chinese food company. <laughs> and uh, they're about, uh, oh, two inches in diameter, right? And they're really gross looking. And, I mean, I'm sorry, there are people out there who probably got nothing. But, uh, you know, they can have my, my, my record, my frying pan book covers. Uh, book. What am I trying to say? What do you put books between? Mm. Your, your your fingers. Now right. what? Uh, well, what ends, I'm looking. Ends. I'm looking at something that Naomi is now modeling behind curtain number three. Why does she model? Which is a uh, it's a um, it's a bracelet. It's a it, it it's a skinny snake bracelet. Uh, is sterling silver? Did you say, dear? Sterling silver skinny snake bracelet. It's supposed to bring good luck. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, uh, on the Price is Right, we'd probably get fifty cents for it. Yeah. And it, no, but it's it's very nice. I mean, it's you know I don't want to put down the company because I like them. They're nice people. And uh, but that 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 was what we got. And I was supposed to have good luck all year. The only problem is is that I don't wear bracelets. Uh, uh, you know. The bookend does fry a neat egg. She's bending it out of shape. One egg. You got one egg. No, it's the bookend. It fries a neat well, egg. It fries one egg. Right. Just a tiny thing. Yes, but it doesn't hold up books or anything. What else? What else did you get? Well, of course, last year you remember we got the very classy American flag telephones. I didn't get an American flag telephone. 